Dr. Kaiser declined to do this, but a speaker ought to establish his credentials for the occasion. So I can do that briefly. My credentials, my justification for presuming to stand before you on the august occasion of an opening lecture are approximately those, I think, that Hillary Rodham Clinton offered for the presidency of the United States. <laughs> um, namely, it's my turn now. <laughs> I get a turn, right? That's at the beginning so that you can cut it out more easily. <laughs> um, but no, really, that's, that's the whole reason. Doctors Kaiser and Agros, who were the two most senior members of the Northfield faculty, gave the first two opening lectures on this campus with results equal to their fame. And then we ran out of elder statesmen. <laughs> we, we, we ran out of the greats. Now, we added to the ranks of the greats because Dr. Kane is here now, but it did not seem right to ask him to give a lecture before he's unpacked. <laughs> um, I think he's still living out of a cube. Um, so, it's true that technically I was next by a very slim margin. I was senior to the next of my colleagues at the time, so I get a turn now. Um, but don't let that thin logic obscure the gulf that yawns between the first two and me. I should not use the word yawns, I think. Um, <laughs> I don't mean to underrate the honor that I've here been given. It is a very great honor and is truly humbling. I only fear to disappoint especially the seniors, the dear seniors, who will remember those first two lectures and may have assumed that this is how it's always going to be. You know, the hits can just keep on coming or at least admit of a gradual descent as gold, silver, bronze. Whereas the trilogy you ought to have in mind tonight is that of the Godfather movies. <laughs> some of you know what I mean. Some of you are thinking, wait, there was a Godfather 3? Exactly. <laughs> um, but in spite of painfully bad acting already, forced humor, ditto, and an all too convoluted plot, which is coming up fast. <laughs> I will do my best. At least in service of my theme, I will add one bit more evidence that in this world there is no universal, inevitable law of progress. <laughs> it seemed fitting to me to attend to St. John Henry Newman in service of the topic of Catholic liberal education after his recent canonization and the more recent installation of his image in our sanctuary. Um, there is, to me at least, something of a mystery in that choice, by the way, because the donors who proposed it in their magnificence supporting the renovation of the chapel have remained anonymous. So I don't know what they were thinking when they asked that St. Newman be up there. But I take it that we have, in effect, been asked as a college to consider Newman as a patron. Uh, perhaps not equal in importance for our self-understanding to St. Thomas Aquinas, but yet a patron of a real and broad significance, which has perhaps lain hidden, especially given how little Newman figures in our curriculum. So praying that this was in fact a providential invitation, I will attempt to draw out one manner in which I think it is fitting to see Newman as a patron. 
Now, it would have been obvious to take up one of Newman's works tonight, since the topic is traditionally Catholic liberal education. The one, in fact, that the statue in the sanctuary represents him as holding, if you have very, very good vision or are so impious as to bring binoculars into the chapel, he's holding the idea of a university. This is his classic tract precisely on liberal education in the light of the English university system. That would have been obvious, but I did not do it. I have chosen for my central text instead an essay on the development of Christian doctrine for three reasons. The first is not a noble one, it's kind of necessity. I have thought about that work longer and more regularly than any other of Newman's works, and I thought I had better just talk about what I know better and trust that I can work in Catholic liberal education somehow. <laughs> Second, as Dr. Kaiser mentioned, this is the one work of Newman that we read in the curriculum. Now that's a better reason, but it cuts both ways. You will read it in the second semester of senior seminar, which means that I'm lecturing on a text that no student here has yet read and discussed in the program. That's not ideal. <laughs> of course, it's easier to follow a lecture on a text that you've read, and given our distinctive method, my preaching from the pulpit, when you do come to read and discuss Newman, could preempt the open inquiry we so desire, I could become the hated outside source. <laughs> um, I may bold to do so nonetheless. If that were an insuperable obstacle, we could never have an opening lecture on Newman. Even as the last lecture of the year, only the seniors would have read him. Moreover, for this to affect your discussions of Newman when you get to him, you would have to remember what I say tonight in late February of your senior year. So time is on my side. <laughs> in fact, when you get there, your thesis will be due in a few weeks. And while Newman's prose is one of the glories of the English tongue, it is not brief. Uh, time will not be on your side. You may feel pressured to give this reading short shrift. So one thing that a preview lecture could do is just to make you want to read it more when you get to it. And if I do that tonight for any reason at all, I'll be content. One reason to want to dig deeply into the essay and to consider carefully what Newman really meant by development, and this is the third reason for my choice of the topic, is that the effect of this theory of development on the view of Catholic doctrine taken by those within the church and without over the last century and a half has been enormous. I would be surprised if anyone here is untouched by it, at least in name for also the reputation or the spirit of development or frankly the abuse of the notion has also been rampant within the church and without. As many through either will or neglect have abandoned Newman's own careful teaching. So I think we stand in need of clarification of fidelity to what Newman really meant for the good of the church as well as to see how he is fittingly taken as a patron of our form of Catholic liberal education. So. I proceed in two parts. First, in the bulk of the paper, I will give an account of what Newman really meant by the development of Christian doctrine in the essay. And I'll try to clarify that dialectically, looking at the reception of it with an effort to understand what has gone wrong in the reception of the theory. Second, with a restored or purified notion of development in hand, I will briefly consider our theology sequence here at TAC, the classes that most of all make our liberal education Catholic, properly speaking, and show how useful, I think, a faithful notion of development, according to the mind of Newman, 
may be for our self-understanding of all four years of theology. So, first part. What is development as Newman meant it? A conversion story. <coughs> Late on the 8th of October, 1845, an Italian priest of the Passionist Order, Father Dominic Barberi, was traveling south in England towards the Channel in an uncovered seat beside a coach in the pouring rain. Some years earlier, Father Barberi had been sent to England by his order to establish a monastery in Aston, and he had long felt a call to try to bring Anglicans back to Rome. He was at the time, however, on his way to Belgium for a chapter of his order. Given the conditions, maybe he was dreaming of Italy and the Mediterranean sunshine instead of English weather. By the time they reached Littlemore, just outside Oxford, where he meant to stay the night with a friend, it was very late indeed, and he was soaked through. <coughs> he writes, We reached Littlemore about an hour before midnight, and I took up my position before the fire to dry myself. The door opened, and what a spectacle it was for me to see at my feet John Henry Newman begging me to hear his confession and admit him into the bosom of the Catholic Church. Now let's back up one week, October 1st, 1845, in Littlemore. John Henry Newman, who was already famous throughout England and beyond as a brilliant and prolific Anglican preacher, writer, controversialist, the spearhead of the Oxford movement, who gained a great following and, and become a lightning rod in a struggle for the soul of the Anglican church amidst a great tide of liberalism, who had frustrated friends and foes alike by withdrawing from that same movement into seclusion at Littlemore under constant speculation that he was planning to leave for Rome to become Catholic at any moment, but insisting to his friends that he was not yet sufficiently clear in his mind. On October 1st, Newman put down his pen and stopped writing, a work of which he had completed more than 400 pages, and determined to see Father Dominic when he passed through for he was, at last, sufficiently clear in his mind. That work was an essay on the development of Christian doctrine. It was not by chance that the writing of this work led him to that pass. He had undertaken it precisely to put an end to his indecision. A man of great learning in the scriptures, the classics, the church fathers, and the history of the church, Newman had once convinced himself that the Anglican Church could be a via media, a middle road, between Catholicism and Protestantism. Protestantism he had rejected long since, as soon as he had recognized in his youth the principle that, quote, the sacred text was never intended to teach doctrine but only to prove it. That's from his Apologia, his autobiography. And that thus, if we would learn doctrine, we must have tradition and an institutional church, not just the scriptures and after he had likewise come to see the importance of apostolic succession. Yet, for long, Newman also saw the Catholic Church at the opposite vicious extreme, a church whose tradition had added to their doctrine many things which could not be proved by scripture, nor evidenced as part of apostolic tradition. The Via Media, while it lasted in his mind, was the Anglican Church as a true branch of the one holy Catholic small c and apostolic church. Having apostolic succession, 
and the fullness of apostolic tradition, but without the accretions and abuses of Rome over the centuries. But by the beginning of 1845, Newman had become convinced that his hopes for a via media were irretrievable and that he must cease to be an Anglican. By the same researches and arguments, he had become less and less hostile to Rome. And yet, the question remained for this man of such refined and conscientious mind and temperament, how can I be sure? Quoting again from the Apologia, what test had I that I should not change again after that I had been a Catholic? However, some limit ought to be put to these vague misgivings. I must do my best and then leave it to a higher power to prosper it. So I determined to write an essay on doctrinal development, and then if at the end of it my convictions in favor of the Roman Church were not weaker, to make up my mind to seek admission into her fold. End quote. And so it proved. <coughs> so this is the first point I want us to keep in mind. The essay was written by Newman when he was still outside the church, although his heart was nearly there already. And it was intended by an outsider as a justification of Catholic teaching exactly as it had been and was in his day by answering an objection. How has the church really been saying the same thing over the centuries? How has she preserved the apostolic faith intact without corruption and without foreign admixture? She teaches transubstantiation, the immaculate conception, purgatory. As far as words go, at least, these are not in scripture. Neither is the word Trinity, by the way, nor in the earliest extant writings of the fathers. Some of these doctrines are only formally taught by the church many centuries after the apostles, yet she professes to be handing on the apostolic faith and she rejects the notion of an ongoing revelation. Certainly she has added words, at least, to what the early Christians professed, it would seem. Must we not admit that she has simply added new teachings, that Catholic doctrine simply changes, full stop? The essay responds, what the church teaches now is what she had from the beginning, but new words can be needed to say the same thing in new circumstances. This is development. The central idea of the essay. The power of Newman's response derives largely from the breadth of his approach, the deep principles from which he begins. He does not suppose that he is positing anything new in the essay. He says, indeed, the view on which it is written has at all times, perhaps, been implicitly adopted by theologians. But he renders this view explicit and its foundation more general than Catholic theology. Quote, from the nature of the human mind, time is necessary for the full comprehension and perfection of great ideas. The highest and most wonderful truths though communicated to the world once for all by inspired teachers, could not be comprehended all at once by the recipients. But as being received and transmitted by minds not inspired and by media which were human, have required only the longer time and deeper thought for their full elucidation. This may be called the theory of development of doctrine. Though Newman refers here to the inspiration of the teachers, a point to which we shall return, the principle or axiom here is not limited to inspired doctrine. It is just as wide as human thought and history. 
Indeed, on this view, we would do a great injustice to the power and richness of Christian revelation if we were to suppose that one generation after another of human minds could simply grasp it entire and pass it on to the next in an easy, rote manner. To say nothing of summing it up in a phrase or two, although that is painfully common today when Christianity comes up in public dispute. Didn't Jesus teach love? Anything more to say? The light can hardly be done fairly with a merely human idea, let us say Plato's philosophy, though that doesn't stop textbooks from trying. And shall we encapsulate a divine revelation in this way? Nay, rather, we must see any great idea only over time and through many aspects, none of which exhausts its content. Often we do not see the force and implications of an idea we already hold until it enters into dialectic, when it is challenged or misunderstood or taken apart. And in the process of expressing what has gone wrong, of defending the original, we see in the original what we had not seen before. Hence, there is, of the very nature of the case, a process and something analogous to life. Quote, when an idea is of a nature to arrest and possess the mind, it may be said to have life, that is, to live in the mind which is its recipient, end quote. It spreads, it grows, it interacts. Now a longer quote from the essay. Thus, in time, an idea will have grown into an ethical code or into a system of government or into a theology or into a ritual according to its capabilities. And this body of thought thus laboriously gained will after all be little more than the proper representation of one idea, being in substance what that idea meant from the first, its complete image as seen in a combination of diversified aspects with the suggestions and corrections of many minds and the illustration of many experiences. Here's the second point then I want to keep in mind. Newman's argument is so powerful a defense of Catholic teaching because it has in view much more than Catholic teaching. It stands on such a broad ground of human thought and thereby it completely shifts the ground of controversy. If this is the character of all great ideas as they play out in human minds over time, not only is it no objection, that Catholic doctrine should, over the centuries, have gradually added many things which are not found just in so many words from the first, but we should have expected nothing less if Catholic doctrine is passing on a true and great idea. How else could revelation live in the minds of men? The opponent assumes that the only pure Christianity is the aboriginal. If you can't find it, exactly as you would have it now, in the earliest sources, then it is a pollution. <coughs> Newman's broad view simply explodes that presumption. And he finishes it off with a rhetorical coup de grace, which is probably the most famous passage in the work. I have a number of lengthy quotations from Newman so that whatever else I may do wrong, that at least I hope will make you want more of him. <coughs> it is indeed sometimes said, Newman says, that the stream is clearest near the spring. Whatever use may fairly be made of this image, it does not apply to the history of a philosophy or belief, which on the contrary is more equable and purer and stronger when its bed has become deep and broad and full. It necessarily rises out of an existing state of things and for a time savors of the soil. Its vital element needs disengaging from what is foreign and temporary. 
In time, it enters upon strange territory. Points of controversy alter their bearing. Parties rise and fall around it. Dangers and hopes appear in new relations, and old principles reappear under new forms. It changes with them in order to remain the same. In a higher world, it is otherwise. But here below, to live is to change, and to be perfect is to have changed often. Finally, Newman must narrow or focus the consideration of the development of ideas in general to the issue at hand, the development of Christian doctrine. This is no mere application of the universal to the particular. Grant that any great idea must develop, must interact with many minds and many environments. Nothing in human terms prevents corruption, prevents that the process should become not the unfolding the true unfolding of the original idea, but its betrayal or infiltration. This is precisely what the critics of the Catholic Church have said, that she has betrayed the original gospel idea with corruptions foisted upon it as if it belonged to it. And shifting the ground to show that true development is to be expected does not on its own answer that accusation. Hence, the bulk of the essay addresses the development of Christian doctrine properly, the development within the church of the original deposit of faith conferred upon the apostles. First, Newman shows how scripture itself confirms the mode of development just described, giving us confidence not only from the nature of human ideas, but from the character of supernatural revelation as we actually have it, that development was intended by the author of Christianity. Second, Newman argues that since the saving truth must needs develop and thus be exposed to the risk of corruption, we ought to have expected from the first that an infallible authority should be part of the gift, an authority itself divinely guided to discriminate and confirm true developments. Newman goes so far as to say that if the infallible developing authority be not given, the revelation itself has virtually not been given. Third, Newman runs through historical evidence for the continuity of doctrine in certain disputed instances like papal supremacy. And here he is, quote, drawing out the positive and direct argument in proof of the intimate connection or rather oneness of with pr primitive apostolic teaching of the body of doctrine known at this day by the name of Catholic. Fourth, and finally, in order to respond most directly to the charge of corruption, he presents and applies seven notes, seven characteristics by which genuine developments may be distinguished from corruptions. I cannot engage all these specifications now. I think it would be better simply to concretize this theory by one historical example, one of many that Newman draws out at length. Let's take the Council of Chalcedon in 451. How does the church understand and faithfully pass down the saving truth that the word was made flesh and dwelt among us? By the fifth century, there had already been a great deal of controversy and struggle over that question. In the fourth, the prior century, the Nicene Creed, which you all know from the mass, was the fruit of a defense of our Lord's divinity against a tide of Arianism which threatened to overrun the church, a defense led especially by St. Athanasius, whom you'll read his sophomore year. Hence the dogmatic formulae 
which are already, note, an expansion upon scriptural language, begotten, not made, consubstantial with the Father. But Chalcedon in the next century was needed because further doubts had arisen. The Son, who is true God, became man. What then is he after he became? We all know that in some sense the answer should be both God and man. But there is an ineluctable mystery in that answer. And new heresies had arisen in the effort to wrangle that mystery into human comprehension. In particular, one Eutyches had argued that after the incarnation, there was but one nature in which humanity had been absorbed into Christ's divinity. He appealed precisely to the Nicene Creed, as well as to scripture. He insisted that nothing should be added to that creed, which, as he took it, implied only one nature after the incarnation. Hence, by the way, this heresy was called monophysite, mono-one-physite from Fusus, nature, one nature. There was so much support for this heresy among Eastern bishops that a council or pseudo-council was called in Ephesus, and it affirmed Eutyches in the view of one nature after the incarnation. It condemned any who would speak of two natures. It refused to read a letter from Pope Leo and had the Archbishop of Constantinople, who was loyal to the Pope, beaten as he clung to the altar, and he shortly died of his wounds. But very soon thereafter, another council was called for Chalcedon, this one truly ecumenical, with the legates of the Pope, Pope Leo, allowed to speak. I'll let Newman take it from here. Such was the state of Eastern Christendom in the year 449. A heresy appealing to the fathers, to the creed, and above all to scripture was by a general council professing to be ecumenical received as true in the person of its promulgator. If the East could determine a matter of faith independently of the West, certainly the Monophysite heresy was established as apostolic truth in all its provinces from Macedonia to Egypt. There has been a time in the history of Christianity when it had been Athanasius against the world and the world against Athanasius. The need and straightness of the church had been great and one man was raised up for her deliverance. In this second necessity, here he means Chalcedon, who was the destined champion of her who cannot fail? Whence did he come and what was his name? He came with an augury of victory upon him which even Athanasius could not show. It was Leo, Bishop of Rome. The bishops at Chalcedon rejected the proceedings at Ephesus as a latrocinium, a robber council, and approved Pope Leo's own tome, defending two natures in Christ, crying out, this is the faith of the fathers, this is the faith of the apostles, we all believe thus. Yet they, the bishops, were disinclined to add anything to the Nicene Creed. They thought it was sufficient. Eutyches' understanding was wrong. But Leo insisted. And so the Acts of the Council read, this creed, the Nicene, were sufficient for the perfect knowledge of religion, but the enemies of the truth have invented novel expressions. And therefore, it, the Council, proceeds to state the faith more explicitly. That is, to determine the profession of faith to two natures after the incarnation. What the bishops wanted was to keep saying the same thing. The faith of the apostles, the faith of the fathers. But as directed by Pope Leo, 
they eventually realized that in the face of novel expressions, it was necessary to add words and determine thoughts in order to keep on saying the same thing, in order to preserve the mystery revealed to us in the words, the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. They had to change in order to remain the same. And by all appearances, they would have failed were it not for the Pope. So, let us make a third touchstone or point to remember about the essay before we turn to its reception. The general theory of the development of ideas must be contracted and completed by elements which are by no means as general as that theory in order to become an account of development as Newman really meant it in the work, the development which belongs to the teaching church. That development is, as he says, an account of the oneness with primitive apostolic teaching of that body of doctrines which goes by the name Catholic, a oneness which is only guaranteed by a divinely guided infallible authority, but can be brought out by an historical investigation which shows how later doctrines can indeed be found to be anticipated in earlier stages of the church, and indeed even to be proven from scripture, not as if we could always have deduced them from scripture alone, but insofar as we see them there, once we already know them. Reception and abuse of the notion of development. How was Newman's great account of development received? That's a very big story, and even if time and heat were no matter, I could not tell it properly. For now, I mean only to distinguish with very broad brushstrokes two basic types of reception, two kinds of audience. The first is that of other Anglicans or of Protestants. As you can imagine, this reception was varied, not at all uniformly applauding. Some argued that the essay simply failed to acquit Rome of the charge of novelty in her teaching. They might grant Newman subtlety and brilliance in argument, but continue to doubt that in the end, he could avoid positing a continuing revelation as the implicit claim of the Catholic Church, a notion which Newman and Rome herself would explicitly abhor. For others, however, the reading of this work had an effect similar to what the writing had in the author's mind, that is, it tore down an obstacle to joining the Catholic Church, and the essay certainly retains that power. I've myself known of a case or two of conversions facilitated by the work. But I must pass this category quickly by. I'll stop only to note that I think it's fair to say that this is Newman's intended audience, that is, those outside the Catholic Church, Although he wrote it for himself, he wrote it to address objections to Roman Catholic doctrine just as it had been and was in his time. And his interlocutors in the text are mainly Protestants or other Anglicans, including his own past self. Yet this reception by the intended audience has been by far the less momentous. The reception of the essay of far greater influence has been within the Catholic Church. Not that the magisterium immediately took Newman's account of development and made it her own. That is the impression you might get now, by and large, but it took some decades for approval to be won. More immediately, though, starting in the late 19th century and continuing throughout the 20th, many individual Catholic theologians, one after another, made much of the notion of development. For many, it has been a key to resolving a great question of that era in the church, the question of how to reckon with a new historical awareness in learned society and new historical researches that upset many assumptions 
about the equable course of doctrine over the centuries. Indeed, development can be seen in the background of many of the great controversies among 20th century Catholic theologians. It was of great importance for Vatican II. It continues to feature in the teachings of recent popes. I think it's hard to overstate how great a difference is made between the first kind of reception and the second, quite apart from the individual differences of various individual theologians. For Newman, in writing the essay, the view was retrospective and the aim apologetic in the ancient sense. That is, to repeat, a defense. A defense of what is by showing its unity with what was. As the notion enters the mind of Catholic theologians, it becomes not just a defense, but a self-understanding which invites a prospective, forward-looking consideration. Instead of an apologia, for doctrine just as it has been, development can come to be an apology, in the modern sense, sorry, for doctrine as it is now, according to the promise of what it might become soon. See how doctrine looks now compared to how it looked in the past, and yet now it is Catholic teaching, the teaching of the one church. What then might it not become? and still be no less the teaching of the one church? What are the possibilities for future development? And how might we be involved? To live is to change, and to be perfect is to have changed often. Dangerous words. Like St. Augustine's, love God and do what you will. And let us not forget that at the same time that Newman's theory of development was circulating, Darwin's theory was just beginning to take the world by storm, prompting in its own way doubt and turmoil in many intellectual spheres with or without sufficient reason, raising in each sphere the specter of evolution, of an essentially historical process undermining the fixity of essences, a growing view of the past as necessarily primitive and fodder for the future. Just before the turn of the century, there was a monumental case of reception of the essay on development. In one Alfred Loisy, a French abbé, priest, and theologian. This is on the one hand an extreme case, so I do not present it as strictly representative. On the other hand, it was the sort of extreme case that's like a great book. It creates a following, it shapes future thought, whether by imitation or reaction. And Loisy came to be called the father of Catholic modernism. Modernism is hard to define here. I will trust that in present company it will be known as a bad thing. Loisy had already other influences to be sure, shaping his mind according to the new historical criticism and giving in fact a radical priority to the new historical criticism of scripture and the early sources of the church over the traditional understanding, self-understanding of the church. Eventually, decades into a career of increasing controversy, Loisy would formulate such questions, which are perhaps now all too familiar to you, such questions as whether we can really know anything about the historical Jesus under all the propaganda of the Gospels. But early on, before this skepticism was so pronounced, when maybe he still meant to work within the church, Loisy received Newman's essay, and he found it after his own heart. He wrote articles expanding, at least expanding on his understanding, Newman's thought, articles which 
intended to lay the foundation of, quote, a new program of Catholic renovation. Newman was for Loisie, the great doctor the church needed in the modern age. Needed for what? To convert Anglicans? No, no, no. To combat an ill-judged conservatism in the church, which cannot brook the tide of the new historical researches. To be the doctor of a living doctrine, which has indeed always been living, because, quote, and this is from Loisie in translation, Christianity is a living reality and not an intellectual concept. Another quote from Loisie, if all this development is animated by the spirit of the gospel, if it is necessary for the gospel's conservation and diffusion, if it is useful in promoting the religion of Jesus, what objection can we have to it? To reproach the Catholic Church for all these things, is not that to reproach it for having lived and for being alive today? One last quote from Loisie. What is truly evangelical in today's Christianity is not that which has never changed, for in a sense, everything has changed and has never ceased to change. How much of Newman is in here? Well, Loisie, as you may know, was condemned by Pope Pius X, eventually excommunicated, vitandus. You will read as seniors the encyclical connected with the condemnation of modernism, Pascendi Dominici Gregis. That seemed only to harden Loisie's resolve and he continued to drift further from orthodoxy to a final religion of humanity. All the while apparently believing himself to be, or at least pre presenting himself as, a priest who had been faithful to his call to serve the church and had taken up Newman's lead to preserve the true essence of Catholic doctrine in the face of a backwards, hidebound hierarchy. So, modernism became a lightning rod. And if Loisie is an extreme case, the specter of modernism, with accusations of such against theologians who were by no means so patently disobedient to the church, cast a shadow over a great deal of 20th century theology. You may have heard of names like Henri de Lubac and Karl Rahner, some of you will know them as theologians much better than I'm, I do. I'm basically just name dropping. But what I think they have in common is that they work to put church teaching in radically new terms in the 20th century. They were accused of modernism, justly or unjustly. And that from early on in their careers, they were thinking and writing about development with Newman as the central figure and taking the notion of development as the key to their projects. Now, I don't think that anyone who would make Newman the grandfather of modernism because of his influence on Loisie has a very serious argument. There were other and powerful intellectual currents flowing at the time, and Newman can hardly be blamed for everything done in the name of development, especially when it abandons clear elements of his teaching, as we will see. So the question is, what went wrong? What did the reception of the essay fail to receive? so that development has been the watchword for so many theologians dissatisfied with the state of church teaching in their own day. There are many ways that one could address this. One factor of inestimable importance I will not try to address, for it does not have to do directly with the theory of development, but with the philosophical atmosphere in which 20th century theologians viewed earlier church teaching an atmosphere which then definitively colored the possibilities for development in their minds. That factor was the widespread agreement that the philosophy of Aristotle is dead. 
and that prior church teaching, cast in Aristotelian terms, could only continue to live if radically reconceived. To correct this error would be a different and massive project, and thankfully needless for this community because, of course, our curriculum is, I think, the best correction going. This is precisely why, as the founders of this college saw so clearly, we cannot renew real discipleship to St. Thomas and the tradition of the church unless we renew appreciation for Aristotle's perennial philosophy, the reports of whose demise have been greatly exaggerated. Let me just add a word from Newman's The Idea of a University to show that, although I think few would call Newman a thoroughgoing Aristotelian, he was on the right side here too, and could probably put it better than any of us. From Newman, do not suppose that in thus appealing to the ancients, I am throwing back the world 2,000 years and fettering philosophy with the reasonings of paganism. While the world lasts, will Aristotle's doctrine on these matters last, for he is the oracle of nature and of truth. While we are men, we cannot help to a great extent being Aristotelians, for the great master does but analyze the thoughts, feelings, views, and opinions of humankind. He has told us the meaning of our words and ideas before we were born. In many subject matters, to think correctly is to think like Aristotle, and we are his disciples whether we will or no, though we may not know it. Preach it, brother. <laughs> so that is a great part of the correction, which I will not address here. But as to what has been missed in the reception of the theory of development itself, I will try to make three points, answering three questions. First, about intention. What are men intending to do when doctrine develops? Second, about the beginning. When does development begin? And in particular, what is the status of the apostles? Third, a question about thought and life. How is Catholic doctrine most truly alive? I hasten to add that everything I will draw truly out of Newman's own text has been said before and better. I feign no discovery here. I wish to promulgate what I think should be better known. First point, intention. What are men intending when doctrine develops? It has been said by a good authority that commands my respect that Newman's idea of the passing on of doctrine is not like the handing off of a football, a dumbly external sort of motion, but like the growth of a tree from seed to sapling to matru mature plant, or like the tossing of a diamond from one person to another, which catches the light in different ways and reveals new facets. So that unlike the football, the receiving of it is not just a catching, but a seeing. I think these points are very well taken and true to Newman. Newman certainly uses both the analogy of organic life in many places and the language of facets or aspects, suggesting a precious stone. But I think there's a danger of misunderstanding Newman if we make too much of a dichotomy between development as growth with its newness or newness of vision and an allegedly dead notion of the transmission of doctrine as a mere handing on of exactly what one has received. Even the lowly metaphor of the football might have something to teach us about true development. It might, for example, remind us that a faithful handing off is something that one might have to fight for 
that may occur under the duress of an opponent. If we dismiss too readily tradition as a mere passing down, perhaps we are underestimating what a challenge it can be to keep on saying the same thing over time. Of course, I grant, we're talking about words and thoughts, not a football, so truly we cannot suppose that this passing down could be unthinking. It must involve the mind. It could not be like the old definition of a lecture. Maybe you've heard this. A lecture is the process by which words pass from the lecturer's notebook to the student's notebook without passing through the minds of either. <laughs> no, we must make doctrine our own if we are to take part in handing it down. It must enter into our minds. And in that very reception, development may be afoot. For our minds are not the minds of our fathers who handed it down to us, nor are our times and milieu theirs. And if in our times novel expressions have been invented, we may face hard choices in the effort to receive and hand down just what our fathers gave us. But this will not be the result of an intention to develop. Newman confirms such a view even when using metaphors of life for doctrinal development. Regarding the gospel's parable of the mustard seed, he notes, it is observable that the spontaneous as well as the gradual character of the growth is intimated. Development is not an effect of wishing and resolving, of a forced enthusiasm, or of any mechanism of reasoning, or of any mere subtlety of intellect, but comes of its own innate power of expansion within the mind in its season. I want to suggest another metaphor for development one that might capture these distinctions in a particular way. I want to rehabilitate biological evolution as an analogy for development, in spite of how much it has served or been employed to distort Newman's doctrine. John Sr. calls evolutionism the polar opposite of Newman's theory of development. But I think that it can be, in fact, a most illuminating analogy for development rightly understood, but only if evolution be rightly understood. If what we mean by evolution is that the perfect being is always further down the line, that change is driven by external forces and by chance with no higher guiding causality required, and that any amount of contradiction may occur between an earlier stage and a later, then yes, what we are thinking of is totocello apart from Newman's idea of development and no use as an analogy. But what we are thinking of is also no use as biology, as an account of nature. What about a philosophically responsible theory of evolution? One from which, as I think, a Catholic has nothing to fear. I'm getting out of my depth here, but I think it is safe to say these few things. If there is evolution, if more perfect species come to be whose ancestors are those of less perfect species, it is certain that the more perfect does not simply arise from the less perfect as such but the less perfect can at most provide a material preparation. The more perfect species must come from what is already more perfect. It must come ultimately from God, whether directly or through some created agency. Second, if there is evolution, chance may be involved, but above and beyond and behind any chance involved, there is purpose through and through. Above and beyond, insofar as we grant that a new species must come from God and therefore come with purpose, but also behind, 
the chance that may be involved in, say, mutation. There is also purposeful action. For what is the engine that drives evolution, even on the atheist's account? Reproduction. I want to put this as plainly as I can. If there is evolution, what are those creatures doing? What are their proper actions by which they are subject to evolution? They are generating. What is generation? The act of producing one's like, of reproducing, handing on to the next generation, so far as it lies in the creature's power, exactly the nature it received. So where is evolution in the long line of like generating like? not in some acts that stand apart from generation, as if, as if creatures could do one thing called generating and thus beget their like, or else ought to do some other thing called evolving and thus beget something different. No, if there is evolution, even though what we mean by it is that eventually what is generated is not entirely alike, it happens through the acts which are ordered to bringing about exactly one's like. It happens because as the generations roll on, nature's God is doing something more with the whole than any one agent within it can aim to affect. Now you might object here. Can't man deliberately aim to bring about evolution? What about Mendel and his pea plants? What about gene editing and all the rest? Yes, a man can act so as to aim at facilitating not the reproduction of like, but variation, to aim by his action at something new. But note carefully what this implies about his position vis-a-vis -vis the subject of evolution. In such an act, he is outside of what evolves. And his actions, which are aimed at variation, aimed at the new, even supposing that he is aiming at a newly robust form of life, these actions are properly called mutilation or killing. That is just how a man can act so as to bring about evolution as the distinct aim of his action, instead of merely being subject to evolution by acts aimed at the propagation of life. If we're talking about pea plants, then perhaps this is no cause for concern, just a distinction. If the subjects of the intended evolution are themselves men, watch out. You know a name for that, eugenics. We rightly have a horror of this. Not necessarily because it is a horrible notion that man should evolve. Maybe it is, but I abstract from this. What we rightly recoil at is what it means for man to try to take this into his own hands. If it is in God's plan that we should evolve, well, as far as I can see, our job has not changed from the beginning. Be fruitful and multiply. And God will take care of the results in his good time try to precipitate it, and you must set yourself outside humanity and hack at it. The message for the question of development, I hope, is becoming clear. It's just an analogy. It proves nothing. But I hope it suffices to give a warning, to give food for thought. I would that theologians would have almost a horror of spending their efforts on what they conceive and intend as development, that is, as the saying of new things, even if they are most earnestly intended as newly robust formulations of the ancient faith, out of fear lest, 
by the very fact that they aim their thoughts at the new, they should put themselves outside of what develops, that is outside the church, and willy-nilly be agents of corruption because they were not content to intend merely to pass on just what they had received, having made it their own in their own minds and times and communities as they could and leaving it to God to prosper the development. Now, of course, this must be qualified. Everything must be qualified. A theologian could intend to do what I just said and yet could conceive of his task under the name of development. And indeed, in Vatican II, Dignitatis Humanae declared that the synod intended to develop, at least the Latin word is evolvere, the teachings of recent popes. So not merely as De Verbum does to affirm progress in the church's understanding of faith as a matter of historical retrospective, but to assert that they are developing right in front of our eyes, deliberately bringing forth something new that is in harmony with the old. But it is one thing for an ecumenical council to speak thus. We know that the Holy Spirit will guarantee that the result will be no corruption, regardless of how the human authors conceive of their task. But I would make this an exception that should reinforce the rule for individual theologians. So again, I would say, and I speak under correction, if you are not an ecumenical council, beware of intending development do not disdain to pass on just what you have received, trusting more to its innate power to answer the needs of your time than your own. Second point, the beginning. Where does development begin? Now analogies are always imperfect and even if you accept the force of the one I just gave, there's something crucial that the analogy of evolution cannot capture about the development of Christian doctrine as Newman taught it. The last thing we would expect of any theory of evolution, and perhaps of development, is to find that the best and most perfect thing came first within the order of evolution or development. Truly the most perfect must come first, absolutely speaking, above and beyond the whole process. But within the process, almost by definition, it would seem that the beginning must be the most primitive in the pejorative sense, the least perfect. What of Christian revelation? If there has been development, and if this is only the nature of the thing over time, does that mean that the earliest grasp of the gospel was the least perfect? Does not gradual explication over time imply that the later is always better? Now the church has always insisted that the beginning is different with Christian revelation. Of course, no one within the pale of orthodoxy would say, I think, that our Lord's own understanding of revelation was primitive, that is, imperfect. Although it's significant that Loisy did eventually go that far. Indeed, our Lord is, in his own incarnate person, the fullness of God's revelation, as St. Paul puts it at the beginning of the letter to the Hebrews. But the church has, moreover, always assigned preeminence to the apostles as well, as possessors, recipients of that revelation. This is why she speaks of handing on an apostolic faith, not just that it was held by the apostles first, but held definitively in its fullness 
and through that fullness, the cause of the availability of that revelation to the rest of the church. St. Thomas Aquinas responded to those in his own time, should we call them proto-modernists, who spoke of the dawning of the age of the Holy Spirit, right in their own time, how convenient, a definitively new and more perfect stage of the church's maturity of doctrine and her possession of the gifts of that spirit. St. Thomas responds, there is no more perfect state of the church that we are awaiting outside of heaven. No more perfect state than that which was enacted at Pentecost. The spirit was given fully to the apostles. Yes, over the ages, men may partake more and less perfectly in the spirit and grasp more or less of the revelation handed down. Nevertheless, and I quote from St. Thomas, we should not expect that there will be some other future state in which the grace of the Holy Spirit is had more perfectly than it has been had to this point, and especially by the apostles who, quoting scripture, received the first fruits of the Spirit. That is, St. Thomas glosses, both prior in time and more abundantly than all the rest. The historical sense says the first is the most primitive, the least perfect. St. Paul says, we have received the primitias, the first fruits. The first is the best. That is the teaching of St. Thomas. That was the constant teaching of the church. What then of Newman and the theory of development in which he so memorably turned around the saying that the water is clearest, nearest the spring? You could easily miss this from a dozen popular presentations of Newman's theory, but there is not a shred of doubt that St. John Henry Newman held exactly the traditional teaching on the knowledge of the apostles before, during, and after the writing of the essay. To take just one example, quote, thus the holy apostles would without words know all the truths concerning the high doctrines of theology which controversialists after them have piously and charitably reduced to formulae and developed through argument, end quote. Indeed, this is a sort of precondition of the theory of development as we have heard it. Development is a theory to explain how later doctrines are precisely apostolic. That is what the apostles knew. So for Newman too, the beginning is fundamentally different from any later stage explained by development. If we are to return to the image of the spring and the river, then the minds of the apostles are not the outlet of the spring. They are the underground reservoir, massive though hidden, and having a purity and self-consistency unmatched even by the river when its bed has become broad and deep and full. The difference is that of inspiration. The apostles were inspired. And this affects, as Newman said, what the divine fiat affected for herbs and plants in the beginning, which were created in maturity. Development describes what happened, and indeed must happen, to the revelation possessed by and handed on by minds not inspired after it was received from minds which were inspired. Inspiration is supernatural. It is not subject to the natural need of the human mind to tease out implications gradually. The process of development, guided by an infallible authority, takes the place of inspiration in the post-apostolic church. What the apostles had habitually, the church in later times has occasionally, when needed, to keep the process of development true to the apostolic faith.
So I think we can see more keenly why it is fitting, apart from the analogy of evolution, that development in the church should proceed only by faithful handing down of what has been received under the guidance of the spirit, which works more than mere repetition out of this handing down, using the exigencies which must attend it to bring out faithfully what was present by its own inspiration in the beginning. What we receive from the apostles, especially in the scriptures, is everything. It possesses everything we can hope to reach by development. It does not present it in such a way as to make everything distinctly accessible and articulable to our minds. Its richness exceeds the natural mode of our minds, hence the spiritual senses. We cannot simply deduce everything from revealed premises either by strict demonstration. If that were so, no infallible guide would be needed. The canons of syllogistic reasoning, which you will have by the end of your freshman year in philosophy, would suffice for infallibility if all we had to do was deduce from the premises given in scripture. And this is far from being the case. Yet it is all there. You know the passage from the Last Supper discourse, I have yet many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. It's not at all surprising that this text has been associated with the notion of development. It is surprising, at least to me, that many seem to take the text as if it referred immediately to development, immediately to the later church. But our Lord was speaking first to the apostles, and we can read in the scriptures themselves how this promise was fulfilled for them. The apostles were led into all the truth. It's happened. Indeed, we are only able to read this because a Galilean fisherman was led into all the truth and wrote it for us and knew what he was writing about. What Newman's account of development shows us, I think, is just how this scripture can bear both meanings by bearing them in order. Because the apostles were led by inspiration into all the truth, the church, in the spirit-led process of development, faithfully handing on the scriptures and the oral tradition of the apostles, can grow gradually into that same fullness of truth. Third and final point, thought and life. So I've just been summarizing a two-part and disparate process. First, inspired fullness which supernaturally preempts the human natural mode of learning, then development, the natural working of the human mind on the revelation once received. We might be troubled by the incongruity between these, and we might wonder, is the first not just beyond our natural capacity, but incompatible with it? That is, we might be wondering how grace perfects nature in this case. And such a consideration might also cut more to the quick of certain errors about Newman. What I've said about the apostles is plain to see in his work for eyes that would see it. And nonetheless, brilliant minds have taken the notion of development, wrested it from that account, and dragged it into the service of modernism. Surely, to some extent, that must arise not from ignorance of Newman's and the whole tradition's claims for the apostles, but a failure to see coherence between that claim for the apostles and the claim of development for the later church the latter being so apt for historical verisimilitude, 
the watchword of historical criticism. What this comes down to, I think, is the relation between thought and life. We have seen this very saliently in Alfred Loisy. For him, the overriding principle in the history of church teaching is simply life. The church must live, even at the expense of consistency of thought. That is, in short, life and thought are opposed. I'll remind you of a quote I gave before from Loisy. The question, therefore, is not one of knowing how to define the essence of Christianity or of the gospel. An absolute definition is not possible because Christianity is a living reality and not an intellectual concept. But we can see hints, at least, of this opposition, not just in a full-blown modernist like Loisy, but in many more moderate theologians. To be fixed in a concept or a dogmatic formula is contrary to life, to a living idea about a rich reality. If we want Christian doctrine to be alive, we must accept that it must always inevitably change without qualification. And indeed, if we can't lay this whole charge at Newman's feet, cannot we lay some of it? That is, however much he may restrict and control the changeability of an idea, when it comes to Christian doctrine, can we not lay the broad notion of the desirability of endless change at his feet, who told us that here below to live is to change and to be perfect is to have changed often? I hope you caught what I did there. I didn't quote the whole sentence. That's a terrible habit. Shun that in your classes. Always quote whole sentences. Let me try again. In a higher world, it is otherwise. But here below, to live is to change, and to be perfect is to have changed often. In a higher world, it is otherwise. Now, what of that? In a higher world, to live is not to change, apparently. Do we care about that now? Can we put it aside because it's only here for contrast? And our concern now is how things are here below? I think not. What we are talking about here below is our participation in a higher world by means of this living doctrine. Now this is eternal life, that they may know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. John 17. Eternal life is a knowing, knowing the unchanging God. Yes, to live here below is to change, no doubt. Most of all in biological life, the life of plants and animals and ourselves insofar as we are living bodies. Only through constant change is the individual and the species preserved. And yes, even in our intellectual life here below, which rises above all purely biological life, Still, the life of the mind is had chiefly through change. And that is Newman's point in this passage. We develop ideas, we syllogize, we learn from others, we pool our thoughts, we forget, and then we recollect. Yet it is not so much a matter of change through and through as the life of the body. In intellectual life, we do have a taste of something different. We understand not just through a never-ceasing process of arguing and developing, but most of all, when we rest in a conclusion, in the vision of something profoundly true, when we behold it in its unity. We cannot stay long on such heights, but they are real, and this is the point, they are life. Understanding is 
living, the highest living of which we are capable. We are so made as to be capable of such a thing, even, up, even if we must be lifted up to it with great effort for fleeting glimpses. That is why knowing God could be eternal life for us. It is perhaps understandable that some of Newman's followers, in spite of all of Newman's own care, should have been led to oppose thought and life, at least to some extent, especially given the forgetfulness of Aristotle, the forgetfulness. And to regard the formulation of dogma as exterior to, even a threat to, the life of Christian truth. Certainly, all the various formulations which the church has produced over the centuries do not always wear their consistency with one another on their face. How much easier to suppose that all formulae are historically conditioned encumbrances that may be necessary in any given time but are of no lasting universal import for the sacred reality which they conceal even as they attempt to express. Truly, formulation can be the occasion for ossification in which the mere repetition of technical terms actually takes the place of thought. We must be wary of this. It can even be an obstacle, though accidentally, to this or that soul, perceiving and coming to grips with the sacred reality so far as it can. But that is an abuse or a falling away. In itself, formulation is precisely a sign of life and a stage of life, like the rings in a tree marking some definitive stage of growth in intelligibility. And shall a Christian for whom the saving truth is the incarnation of the word be scandalized by the imperfect, historically conditioned, all too human character of words and doubt that God's truth could be put into words that shall not pass away? Newman had ever in mind what he calls the principle of dogma, that is, supernatural truths irrevocably committed to human language, imperfect because it is human, but definitive and necessary because given from above. Elsewhere, he expresses, by way of contrast, the lifelessness of heresy through its dogmatic sterility. Its formulae end in themselves, I quote, without development, because they are words, they are barren because they are dead. If they had life, they would increase and multiply. A heresy creates nothing. It tends to no system. Its resultant dogma is but the denial of all dogmas, any theology under the gospel, end quote. Whereas the life of orthodoxy is seen in its dogmatic fecundity, its tendency to produce more dogma, adding without loss or reversal to the intellectual life of the church, her understanding of her faith, giving to herself more words which are not mere words, but abidingly true aspects of the unchanging truth. So, how can it be that here below the nature of the human mind with great ideas is just as Newman said? And nonetheless, with the Christian revelation, there was a perfect supernatural gift of an idea received in its fullness by the apostles. We may respond that the vision of an intelligible whole was ever what our minds were made for. And we can receive what we can never produce. And words were ever the means by which our thought is fixed and perfected. And if in our hands they do so chiefly in the mode of development, that is, distinguishing, separating, putting in order, answering just one question at a time, still words under supernatural inspiration can also be the vessels of a concentration of thought 
of a richness of meaning packed into a small space through a multiplicity of senses. Here then is our purified notion of development as Newman meant it. The apostles received the fullness of the revelation intended by our Lord as an inspired gift which they possessed habitually and passed on through the scriptures and their oral tradition. But the church receiving it from them could only receive that fullness according to the human mode of realizing a great idea, bringing out that fullness over time through interaction with secular influences, through combating heresy, through long meditation on the sacred texts, and above all, through the infallible authority of the church, which alone makes possible its secure possession. As a consequence, to keep saying the same thing, to preserve exactly the faith handed down by the apostles must needs entail a gradual systematization, a growth in the number and formality of statements to be believed, a technical vocabulary, and so forth. That is the human mode of coming into the possession of what the apostles had in a better mode, better because supernaturally unified. And scripture must therefore always remain superior to the systematization and in a sense, its measure even as the system cannot be simply deduced from scripture. And for our minds, it can do what scripture sometimes cannot. It is indeed a living teaching, which grows into what it always had. It is life from life. Okay. Many objections could be raised to the claims I've made, overambitious and at once threadbare as they are. I've been moving through a lot. Perhaps the doubt which is most troubling you now, however, is when are you going to talk about Catholic liberal education? <laughs> Look at the time. Uh, my friends, time is short. Eternity is long. This lecture is somewhere in between. <coughs> um, but be not afraid. The second part will be very short by comparison. And if you've overlooked the weaknesses in my arguments and stayed with me anyway, it should be easy, because it was all a setup. Our program deserves to be called Catholic liberal education chiefly because of the theology tutorial, not just its presence in our curriculum, but the fact that everything else is ordered to it. I will just state that. If you want a defense, you cannot do better than go to the blue book. I want to see now how this purified notion of development, one true to what Newman meant, is a very intelligible light in which to view our theology curriculum, and therefore to see why, in its head and cornerstone, this curriculum is effective as Catholic liberal education. The order of theology. Now, the order of the theology curriculum is straightforward. It will strike you as roughly historical, although it's also clear that historical coverage as such is not the aim. As freshmen, you simply read scripture, all of it. As sophomores, you read some of the great early fathers and doctors of the church, Athanasius, Augustine, John Damascene, Anselm, chiefly St. Augustine. You begin with his On Christian Doctrine, which tells you how to read scripture, and end with the City of God, which could be seen as a great companion of Christian teaching. These writings, especially Augustine's, might be characterized by their closeness to scripture in their very words and in their mode of thought, while nonetheless, None of them are scriptural commentaries properly, but are all in some way thematic. 
you might say that they are ordered rather around certain questions raised by scripture and around the controversies that have in turn arisen within the church surrounding those questions and the church's previous answers. As juniors and seniors, your course in theology culminates with the study of St. Thomas's Summa Theologiae, which presents sacred doctrine as a science ordered, articulated, all sorts of distinctions made, questions and answers given as clearly and determinately as possible, a technical vocabulary deployed consistently, shunning ambiguity at every turn, and all presented according to a plan which is laid out beforehand, follows the order of the material, and is immediately intelligible, explaining why every part is exactly where it is. In a word, it is not very much like scripture. And the scriptural citations, which were rife in St. Augustine, simply woven into his prose, will seem few and far between in St. Thomas by comparison, sometimes confined to the said contra, the citation of an authoritative judgment on a question, which precedes St. Thomas's own scientific answer and is quickly forgotten by most readers. And this, the Summa, which may seem so far from scripture, is the culmination of our sequence. Its study is more than anything else what we're here for. And we're following the guidance of the church in making St. Thomas our teacher in this fashion. I expect you can see where this is going. This arrangement, which is a very wise one, nonetheless is apt to raise some doubts or some presumptions about scripture. Looking at the sequence in light of development should help to set these straight. First, let me make an historical note, just historical about the college. If you read the blue book right through to the end, you will notice that the initial program and plan for the theology tutorial differs slightly from what actually developed, if you'll pardon the term. Here is what the blue book says about the theology tutorial. The order of study will be primarily doctrinal rather than historical, that is, based on the natural order of learning and on the differences among the various theological topics. And if you look at the four-year scheme of the curriculum sketched thereafter, we see that, all right, the freshman and sophomore years are drawn out roughly as they are now in practice. In the junior year, the plan in the sketch is to have texts of St. Augustine and St. Thomas on grace and free will read in parallel according to the topic. And in senior year, to do something similar for the mysteries of the Trinity and the Incarnation, to read Thomas and Augustine and other doctors of the church in parallel according to the topic. Now, I certainly am not bringing up this change as a criticism. Of course, an initial sketch of a program, a study not yet in existence, is going to be subject to adjustment in the execution. Such a difference in detail is overwhelmed by the astounding congruity of the whole vision of the blue book with the actual practice here. There's little so remarkable in the landscape of Catholic higher education over the last half century as how closely this college has in fact cleaved to its founding document, even down to the structure of the curriculum. But I will risk impertinence in guessing at an underlying reason for this adjustment in theology, even though I was not there when it was made. I'm going to presume that the superiority of the plan we actually follow in the latter years of theology over this initial conception of a doctrinal order rather than historical, which is perfectly defensible in theory, consists especially in the implicit regard for development, 
as giving shape to Catholic theology in no accidental way. As Newman said in the Apologia, development gives a character to the whole course of Christian thought. Indeed, with experience in the more developmental order we now follow, it's not hard to imagine what could be the consequences of doing a parallel reading in a single course of, say, Augustine and Thomas on grace and free will. I have little doubt that Augustine would fare poorly in the minds of our students in that arrangement, and the same might go for the other early fathers. For Thomas would always seem clearer, more satisfyingly definitive, would always seem to give an answer or make a distinction where the earlier teacher was ambiguous. That would be the impression, I think, and it would be a great disservice. Now, in the approach we do have, such a reaction is still possible, but I think much less likely, for we are allowing different eras of development each to have their time. And in that time to show, each in its own way, a perfection of the teaching of Christian doctrine. For there is a perfection that belongs to the less scientific, the rawer, the closer to scripture in language and thought, the closer to controversy with heretics, and another perfection that belongs to the scientific, the cool, the delineated, the articulated. And the one should take nothing away from the other, so long as they come in that order which is the necessary order of development. There are many questions in St. Thomas that could well seem artificial, needlessly abstract, dead, if we have not already known in ourselves the prior development that has wrung each of these questions out of the original revelation, that connects them to the fundamental revelation of the incarnation of Christ. And that goes through the fathers who will hold our noses to the scriptures so as to see doctrines contained in them more distinctly than we could on our own. And those will in turn, in the further questions that they engender, give real life and need to the articulations of St. Thomas. Now let me take this all the way back to scripture. As I mentioned, the order of our theology curriculum may give rise to a doubt or to a presumption about the role and place of scripture. The doubt, is likely to be felt most by freshmen and sophomores. If you freshmen have not already felt it, I'm sure the time is coming in your exploration of the Holy Scriptures together when you look around the room and think, we don't know what we're doing. <laughs> that may happen in all of your classes, but you may feel <laughs> the insufficiency more keenly when you consider the sacredness of the text with which you are making whatever mess you were making at the time. You might doubt that you are doing things in a good order. When you are sophomores and have gotten into on-Christian doctrine, in which, as I mentioned, Augustine teaches you how to read scripture, you might think, this order is perverse. Why didn't we do this first and then read scripture? Now, you upperclassmen are more likely to feel a presumption basking in the clarity of St. Thomas, you might find yourself making this judgment more or less explicitly. It made sense to read scripture first because that is the messy, imperfect beginning of theology. And you've learned, wise upperclassmen as you are, that we usually have to start with what is messy and imperfect but closer to the senses and then render it into scientific order and clarity. So perhaps you will begin to regard scripture as a fitting starting point to be left behind by the Catholic or at least held in a definitively subordinate position 
once he has come into possession according to his level of learning of either a summa or at least a catechism. So let's set these straight with a proper notion of development. What is scripture in theology? It is the alpha and the omega. It is indeed the necessary beginning because theology is about what God has revealed to us of himself. And scripture is that revelation, not exclusively, but preeminently outside the very incarnate person of our Lord. We can be united to our Lord more closely indeed in the Holy Eucharist, but not by way of understanding. In scripture, we have the intelligible words by which the word chose through the spirit to reveal himself to all the generations of the church. It is a revelation which more depth than we could ever plumb. St. Thomas himself says that the Holy Spirit who ultimately authored the sacred text can understand by one word of that scripture more than all the theologians over all the centuries will ever grasp. If St. Thomas were here and he heard one of us express our gratitude for the Summa as putting an end to our need to deal with the messy primitiveness of scripture, I think what St. Thomas would do would run and look for the nearest fire to grab a burning brand, as in that famous episode with the prostitute, to take the flame either to you or to his summa or both. <laughs> I mean it. Scripture is more than just the beginnings of theology. It puts in a phrase the whole vision of a truth which in the mode of later theology can only be grasped by painstaking distinction and technicality. That is not a criticism of either. But I am who am, the Father and I are one. This is my body, Hail Mary, full of grace. These are not rough-hewn beginnings. They're perfect. They are like strong wine, rich and heady, so full of meaning that they are near to bursting the wineskins of our words. And if all of us must take much milk besides, relying on the church to fulfill this need maternally through teachers like St. Thomas by adding words and distinctions, concocting formulas, making it all much more digestible by our minds, it is all well and good. It is what God intended. Doctrinal development has done for us what scripture alone could not. But let us never look at the first fruits and call them primitive. So it is eminently worthwhile to wrangle with scripture at the start of your studies here. Never mind the vast imperfection of your treatment. You could never treat it perfectly anyway. Think of what St. Thomas said about all the theologians of the history of the church. It's okay. What would be an inestimable loss would be always to hold it at arm's length and never encounter its unmixed potency. Here, in fact, I think the great books method shows up best. Even where a Catholic, unfamiliar with our method, might at first be shocked at the approach. You read scripture and you don't have the catechism beside you? In fact, you dismiss references to the catechism? Well, by setting aside just for the discussion, the catechism and everything that commentary new or old might have to say, we are insisting that you have that encounter which is irreplaceable and would be watered down if we began with anything else. On the other end, it is also perfectly fitting that our study should culminate, not in scripture, but in St. Thomas. For after all, we are not inspired. 
and our own grasp of Christian doctrine will be far more perfect when we have been docile to the angelic doctor's ordering and articulating mind. And moreover, we will be far better prepared to integrate that grasp with our grasp of the human arts and sciences just because this stage of development of doctrine has so fully incorporated the human order of learning. So, my hope is that if you see your progressive study in four years of theology in terms of development as Newman meant it, you will see and enjoy the sweetness of the perfection of each year. You will see the continuity of the summa with the earlier years as being truly the passing on of the same doctrine under the changes that must be wrought by centuries of interaction with secular learning and heresies. And see the need for you individually to return to scripture constantly in your own study, in your own spiritual life even when the curriculum has of necessity left it behind. And never to give short shrift to the places where St. Thomas does use it. And if you should go on to further study after this place, if you should feel the very lofty calling of a theologian, my hope is that you will never tire of turning to what has been handed down to you in the trust that it has what the times need. If you will but give yourself more completely to it, so that you might hand it down faithfully. And listen not to the temptation of novelty, always knocking at the scholar's door, nor imagine that only in the unprecedented are great deeds to be done, that preservation is an easy matter which lies wholly in our power and for which dull minds suffice. But rather, rejoice if at the end of much labor, you will have been found worthy to go on saying the same thing. Thank you for your patience.